Okay, we're continuing our series through the book of 1 Samuel. We're in chapter 10 this morning. The entire chapter is on your uh, sermon note printout, but you can open up your Bible if that's uh, more convenient for you. And I've really found this helpful to kind of move through the passage quickly, get sort of a narrative sense of what, is, what our attention is being drawn to, and then to tease out at least one application. And I think there's a significant one this morning. So if you think of the last chapter, Saul is chosen as king in chapter 9, and we kind of leave on this cliffhanger where he's about to leave Samuel, and Samuel says, send the servant ahead. They're just outside the city, and he's like, i got something to say to you. I actually have a message of God, from God to you. And then in chapter 10, you sort of have an A part and a B part. The A part is Samuel anoints Saul. And then the second part, Saul is presented or proclaimed as king to all the Israelites. So let's look at the part A first and move through the first 16 verses. So Samuel and Saul are outside the city gate. Samuel has just told Saul, I've got a message from God for you. And it says, verse 1, Then Samuel took the flask of olive oil and poured it on Saul's head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? His inheritance is an idiom which refers to Israel. Israel is referred to as sometimes God's uh, firstborn son or his inheritance or his people. Samuel is saying to God, I'm anointing you to confirm that you are called to be the ruler over Israel. Now, the anointing symbolizes something significant. A person who is anointed in the Old Testament is someone who is set apart for a special purpose. It doesn't happen very often in the Old Testament. This is one of the handful of times it does happen. And Samuel is using anointing with olive oil as a way to communicate and sort of embody and symbolize in the same way that the oil is being poured over Saul's head, God's blessing and the mantle of leadership is coming to Saul. And the oil symbolizes being set apart for God's purposes. It also symbolizes healing. Uh, Shepherds would use olive oil to heal cuts and wounds on sheep, so it also had a um, uh, what was implied in it is the same sort of like healing presence and flow of God. That's why in the New Testament, the book of James says if you're sick, you gather the elders around the leadership in your church and they pray and anoint you with oil. So it's a symbolic mechanism of of healing and of um, reminder that God heals and restores. But it's also a symbol of supernatural empowerment. It's a symbol that the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, is coming upon this person to empower them for a task that they couldn't do just from themselves, from their own willpower, within their own skill set. And so... Again, the anointing is about being set apart and healed and then empowered into a new role, a new mantle, a new purpose. And so this is what Samuel is communicating to Saul. You're being set apart, you're being healed, and you're being empowered to be king. And then to confirm this, so that Saul isn't like, is this just some the thoughts of a raving madman out in the middle of the desert? As Samuel says, there's three signs that are going to accompany this anointing, and they're very specific, and they're going to happen in short order, and over the next few verses, they do. 
Um, Samuel says to Saul, when you leave today, you're going to meet two men near Rachel's tomb at Zelza in the border of Benjamin. So you don't have to know all those places. Just pay attention to the specificity, right? It's not like you're going to leave from here and then like meet someone and they're going to be like saying something. It's not vague. It's very precise. And they're going to say to you, the donkeys you set out to look for have been found, but now your father's stopped thinking about them, and now he's worried about you. What shall I do about my son? And then Samuel says, and then you're going to go on from there uh, to the great tree of Tabor, and three men going up to worship God at Bethel are going to meet you. And one's going to be carrying three goats, and then another three loaves of bread, and another skin of wine. They're going to greet you, and they're going to offer you two loaves of bread, right? Like really odd specificity around this stuff. And then you're going to accept that from them. And then after that, you're going to go to Gabeah of God, and there's a Philistine outpost there. And as you approach the town, you will meet a procession of prophets coming down from the high places with lyres, timbrels, pipes, harps, and they're going to play before them, and they're going to be prophesying. And then Samuel tells Saul, the Spirit of the Lord is going to come upon you powerfully, and you're going to prophesy with them, and you're going to be changed into a different person. And that word change in the Hebrew can refer to a violent overthrow. It's something dramatic. Um, it, it's not meaning that it's going to be what we think of as violent, but it's uh, Jewish hyperbole to say, you're not just going to be like inspired. They're not going to be coming down or going to be like, oh, that's really sweet. I had a little moment there's going to be a significant encounter that God is going to do in your life in that moment such that they will be sort of an obvious before this event and after this event. And then Samuel says, once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do because God is with you. He says, this is going to be the confirmation that what I'm telling you in this anointing comes from God. It doesn't even come from me. Go ahead of me down to Gilgal. I'll sh um, surely I'm going to come down to you. I'm going to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. And then I want you to wait seven days until I come to you and tell you what you are to do. As Saul turned to leave Samuel, in verse 9, the text says, God changed Saul's heart. And all these signs were fulfilled that day. God did something within Saul. And the text sort of, implies that Saul wasn't even aware of it as he turns to leave and as he turns to okay I'm stepping into this God does something in his heart and God changing the heart of people is definitely a meta theme running through the entire scope and sweep of scripture we read again and again in ways small and large that God needs to change our hearts that our natural hearts what theologians would call the sinful man um, sinful uh, woman, our default setting is one where we are resistant, numb, blind, deaf to the things of God. And we need God to change our heart so that instead of being in a default state of resisting and avoiding and holding God at arm's length, we're actually eager to cooperate with Him and cooperate with His purposes and allow him to use us to be a source of blessing to other people. Verse 10, when Saul and his servant arrived at Gibeah, a procession of prophets did meet them, and the Spirit of God came powerfully upon him, and he joined in their prophesying. So in the Old Testament, prophesying is when the Spirit of God would come upon people, and they would foretell, um, the, uh, foretell the future and foretell a message from God. So it was sort of like a dual action of 
speaking into current realities and giving God's perspective on what's happening. Because we can look around, right? And we can have different pundits on television and family members and people around us saying, I know what's really happening. Like I'm scanning there. I know what's really going on. I'm going to put this puzzle together. And prophesying was a way for God to use prophets to say, God is standing, has a very different perspective. And he's now going to disclose what's happening from his point of view, what's really going on. And that was one of the ways that prophets worked. And then the other ways was that they would foretell the future, similar to what Samuel just did, where he says, these things are going to happen, and I want to tell you about them so that you can prepare for it. So Saul has this really real and really profound spiritual experience. And, th- and this is important to make note of, because this is real for Saul. He's just been anointed. He's been summoned into this new vocation as king. And now God's Spirit comes upon him in a powerful and personal way. And then in verse 11, when all the people who knew Saul formerly saw this, they're like, what's happened to, to the son of Kish? What's with this guy? Is Saul also among the prophets? Again, another clue in the text. We've, I've sort of been seeding this idea that um, Saul, although he was kind of tall, dark, and handsome, he fit the mold of a king, what you'd want in a king. Uh, he didn't carry himself like that. He didn't have his own, uh, his own self-perception and the way that he moved into the world was such that there wasn't a lot of confidence there. And you see that here. People are like, wow, Saul's like standing up and speaking truth and being bold. Like what happened? This is not the Saul that we've known for most of our life. He's operating out of some kind of new power, new purpose. They're scratching their heads. And the men who were there in verse 12 say, who, who, who is this? Who is their father? So it became a saying, is Saul also among the prophets? Has something happened to Saul? That now he has this new mantle of prophetship on him? After Saul stopped prophesying, he went to the high place. And now Saul's uncle asked him and his servant, where have you been? So you've been gone for a while looking for the donkeys. What's happened? Um, they said, well, we, we were looking for the donkeys, but when we saw that they weren't to be found, we actually went to Samuel. And then Saul's uncle says, oh, well, what did Samuel tell you? Saul replied, oh, he assured us that the donkeys had been found. But then note the next line. But he, Saul, did not tell his uncle what Samuel had said about the kingship. Again, another thing to make note of. This is a very clear and maybe the most so far in the story, the biggest manifestation of Saul's insecurity yet. He's been anointed. He's had this powerful experience where God's Spirit has come upon him. Hey, Saul, what's happened? Well, nothing, just looking for some donkeys. Nothing about kingship or being empowered by God. No, no, just, just donkeys. He can't even own it. He can't even say it. He doesn't want to say it. He's either unwilling or unable or some mix of the two. But there's an insecurity there. Despite the fact that he's had a profound and real experience of both calling and confirmation from God, he's still living from this insecurity. And to me, that shows just how powerful, in a sense, the default setting of our hearts can be. Um, God's, God can actually be powerfully at work in our life, providing external validation, internal validation of who we are in Him and what we're called to be and what we're called to do. 
And we can still have insecurity, in a sense, driving the, the being on the throne of our hearts. Now, if I were to ask you, what if someone in an objective way could come to you and say, I've received a message from God. This is who you are. This is your mantle. This is what you're supposed to do. I'm going to confirm it by these signs. And then you're going to have a powerful personal encounter with God that will confirm it. Will you then move into that thing? I think we'd all like to say, well, yeah, for sure. If there was that kind of like validation, absolutely. And we see here, no, I think we're fooling ourselves. Even with all of that confirmation, external and internal, even with God's anointing, Saul is trying to hide what has happened to him, the mantle that has been placed on him. Verse 17, Samuel summoned the people of Israel to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I brought Israel up out of Egypt. I delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you. But you have now rejected your God. Remember a few chapters earlier? Give us a king. Well, God's your king. You don't want, no, we want a king like the other nations. Well, the king like, you're, you're asking for someone to come in and actually oppress you. This is all that's going to happen to you. Yep, we know. Give us a king. So that's what he's referring to. You have now rejected your God who saves you out of all of your disasters and calamities. And you've said, nope, appoint a king over us. So now present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans. So this happens. All the tribes and clans get organized. They come forward. The tribe of Benjamin is singled out by Lot. And then um, they come forward. And then clan by clan, they move through until you get to Matri's clan. And then finally, Saul, son of Kish, was taken, was, was drawn as a public uh, affirmation that this is the person that is chosen. But when they looked for Saul, he wasn't anywhere to be found. Verse 22, so they inquired further of the Lord, has, has the man come here yet? Like, is he here? Like, we're all here. Is Saul like running late? And God says, actually, he's hidden himself among the supplies. Again, another now even more aggressive manifestation of Saul's insecurity, of his un- inability, unwillingness to step into this mantle of leadership, to step into the calling that the anointing had confirmed. He's hiding. He's avoiding his own coronation. All of Israel is there, ready and excited to celebrate him. And through his actions, he's saying, I don't want this. I'm trying to run from it. This should be an exciting moment in Saul's life. And it's one where he's doing everything he can to get out from under it. Verse 23, they ran and brought him out and he stood among the people and he was a head taller than any of the others. Again, another very subtle reminder from the text, Saul on the outside looked the part, but on the inside, he's a mess. And when it says they ran and brought him out, that's gentle language. The Hebrew means to lay hands on or to seize. So it's not like they caught him in like this supply room. They're like, hey, Saul, the coronation's happening. And he's like, oh, 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 yeah, it is. No, I knew, I knew it. I was just, just checking to make sure we had enough chicken for the big celebration. It's all good. Okay. He's actually hiding. He's avoiding. He hears the footsteps coming. He's hiding behind things. They're like, Saul, Saul. We don't know how it plays out, but it's, they actually have to bring him forcibly to the coronation and stand him 
in front of the people. And Samuel said to all the people in verse 24, do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. This is super interesting, to me at least, because that's kind of not true. But notice what Samuel says, and I don't know if he's doing this intentionally or if he's slipping into sort of this, he looks like a king, so therefore he'll be good as a king. But he says, see the man the Lord has chosen. There's no one like him among all the people. But that, that's only referring to Saul's externals. Because there was only one way that Saul was actually distinct. He was a head taller than everybody else. And I don't know if Samuel's saying, well, if he has some kind of insight, psychological, emotional, spiritual insight, and all he can point to as the big selling feature is, look at this guy. Not like, do you know this guy? Do you see his heart, his character, his passion? Yeah, he looks the part, but what about the inside? All he can say is, look at this guy. Wouldn't you be happy and proud to have a leader that looks like that? It's only on the outward appearance that Saul has no equal among all the people. We know from the previous chapters that what he's going through is what all of Israel is going through. They're insecure to step into the mantle of who God's called them to be. I want you to be distinct as a people. We don't want to be distinct as a people. We want, we want to run like every, everyone else does. We want our government to be like every other government. We want our king to be like every other king. It's awkward and weird and challenging and hard and difficult to live into what God wants. So we don't want to like reject God, but we just want God in our life our way. And that's driven by all kinds of insecurity. You see it as as you study Israel's pattern. Samuel explained to the people, verse 25, the rights and duties of kingship. He wrote them down on a scroll. He deposited it before the Lord. This is probably that list of things that this is what you signed up for. Remember? This is the economic and uh, social and relational and emotional exploitation that you're going to experience. It's, it's his right. Don't say I didn't warn you. And then Samuel dismissed the people to go to their own homes. So Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, accompanied by valiant men whose hearts God had touched. But there were also scoundrels who said, how can this fellow save us? And they despised Saul, and they didn't bring him any gifts. There was no tribute. But Saul kept silent. Again, very interesting that probably these scoundrels, these troublemakers who aren't just like, oh, Saul's amazing, everything's amazing now. They're like, for real? Like whether they see through the facade of his looks and they can pick up on the fact that he's not in a good place to lead, but they're resistant to it. But what I think is interesting is I wonder, like, I think when there's, when they're, they're voicing what Saul is telling himself. Like, they're like, well, how can this guy save us? But those are the voices that Saul's been battling ever since he's been called. Well, how can I save? Why, why am I king? I'm just a Benjaminite. I'm just a, I'm a, like, who am I to do this? Who am I to step into leadership? I don't bring a lot to the table. There's got to be some kind of mistake here. So there's this, outer critic, inner critic dynamic at play. And I think these voices on the outside are mirroring the ones that are entrenched in Saul's own heart. Here's a lesson that I've thought a lot about. I want you to think about it, not just this morning, but in the days and weeks ahead. And it's sort of like the big application of the text, at least as God put it on my heart this week. And that is, 
It is very possible to be anointed and still live out of insecurity. It's very possible to be anointed by God, confirmed, to have God's blessing, to have God at work in your life, but to not live from that place. To live from old scripts that you told yourself, that your parents told you, that you were raised in, that you inherited, that you began telling yourself after this series of failures, um, or as you've fixated on certain deficiencies in your life, or in who you are as a person, those got amplified, and God's at work in your life, and you are anointed, and you are set apart, you have a calling on your life, but you are operating out of a fundamental insecurity, a fundamental avoidance. The Bible actually says that every single Christian is anointed in Christ. We'll get to that passage in a second, but I want to show you the trajectory of anointing in Scripture so that you understand the implications of that when we get there. In the Old Testament, anointing was very rare, and it symbolized God's Spirit in a very unique and uh, time-sensitive and role-sensitive way being released onto a person in order to fulfill a divine calling or purpose. And that happens a few times in the Old Testament. And then Jesus comes as the Christ. And Jesus Christ, Christ isn't his surname. It's not like Jeff Strong. Christ is the Greek word which means anointed one. So the primary way we think of Jesus and frame Jesus, although he has many names in Scripture, he called himself many things, it's Jesus Christos, Jesus the anointed one. He is set apart to bring healing and empowerment into the lives of those who are at a spiritual, spiritually dead or at a spiritual dead end. And he has come to choose them, to heal them, to empower them into a new future, starting now and continuing on forever. And Jesus makes it very clear that's what he's about. Because at the start of his ministry in Luke 4, he reads from the prophet Isaiah. And he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me. And then he explains for what? to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set oppressed people free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This massive vision of shalom, not just saving souls into heaven, but bringing people into a right relationship with God, rightly orientated in all of their life, so that all of their life flows in the direction of being a blessing to God, a blessing to other people, and to, as Rick said, live into the fullness of who God designed you to be. And then after Jesus' death and resurrection, the Spirit in Acts 2 is poured out at Pentecost. And there's this manifestation, people prophesying and people having, you know, but, but it's not one person and it's not like super religious people. It's just regular people who have trusted Jesus. And Peter says, he has to explain to the crowds what's happening because no one has seen this before. And he quotes from the Old Testament that says, in the last days, God says, I'm going to pour up my spirit on all flesh. I'm going to anoint in order to set apart, to heal, and then to empower not just particular kings or certain prophets, but anybody who calls on my name. Young or old, rich or poor, ethnicity doesn't follow, it doesn't matter whether you're ethnic, ethnically Jewish or Gentile. None of those things matter. It's about a humble trust in me. What was once for only a few is now open to all. And again, for what? To be set apart for God's purposes? To be healed? 
and then to be supernaturally empowered to fulfill a calling that only the church as a group and the church as individuals can fulfill. That's why when Paul is writing to a group of Christians in his second letter to the group in Corinth, he says, now it is God who makes us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us. He set a seal of ownership on us and he put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. And you can read over those things quickly, but when he says he anointed us, I mean, some of the Gentile Christians in the room, non-Jewish people would have been like, okay, that's kind of weird, but whatever. But the Jewish people would have been like, he anointed us, like all of us? Not just like the pastor, but like all of us were all anointed? That was revolutionary. And notice that it's in the past tense. He anointed us. When we trusted Jesus, the Spirit comes into our lives, begins a work in us, seals us, um, and anoints us symbolically. It's been done. It's, it's not something you have to earn. You have been anointed. You've been set apart in order to be healed and then empowered into a future God has for you. I know that whenever I talk about, whenever anybody talks about stepping into something that God is calling you to do, there are those who are listening who are whose posture of their heart is hesitation, resistance, or even like Saul, it's like, I'm hiding. There's different ways you can hide from God. You can hide like Saul did and just avoid any connection with God stuff. Avoid church, avoid sermons, avoid reading your Bible. You can be a Christian, you're kind of like, yeah, but I'm very intentionally keeping God on the peripheral, and you can hide that way. You can also hide in plain sight. You can show up to the Bible studies. You can show up to church. You can sing the songs. You can raise your hand. You can do your devotions every day. But internally, you've said, here, but no further, God. Or I definitely want, like, I want to cooperate with you, but only in sort of these areas. And as God begins to say, this is where I'm leading you. This is the mantle that I have in your life. We can be tempted to say, well, I'm kind of giving you this other stuff, so let's negotiate. I don't want to do this. Like, I don't want you out of my life. I want you in my life, but I want it to be bounded. And however that gets framed, it's, it's still really, in a sense, right, about saying, hey, God, how about you operate in my life as if I am God, and then you do my will. My will be done. Saul's insecurity drove him to resist the mantle of leadership in his life. It drove him. It was a compulsion that drove him to avoid the mantle of kingship and all that came with it. He was hiding from crowds that were cheering him, saying, long live the king. This would be awesome. He can't bring himself to step into that. And we know why in chapter 9. He's like, but I'm a Benjaminite. And like I have all the, like I don't bring the right resume to the table he can't even own it and we don't know the exact nature of Saul's insecurity we'll get more clues as the story unfolds but we don't need to know all the details to learn the lesson from it which is it's very possible for God to be for you in your life prompting you leading you but you're self-sabotaging the work of God in your life because you're 
resisting or hiding from God. Or maybe not in every way, but in this area, when God says, I want you to go here, I want you to do this, I'm putting something on your heart, we start finding justifications. And maybe we think those justifications are born out of humility. Oh, I made a mistake. I'm just, I'm just, a, regular, I'm just a regular Christian God. Like, it's, but is it humility or is it actually just insecurity? And an unwillingness to own the mantle of what God is calling you to do who God is calling you to become. And when I read this story, and you're certainly going to see it play out in Saul's life, it's scary for anybody who's in Christian leadership, but it's scary for any leader. Because you can sabotage. You can self-sabotage God's work in your life. If you don't learn how to identify and heal from those places of insecurity, it can shipwreck your faith in your life and your leadership. And this morning, I want to use Saul's story to speak to those whose insecurities keep them hiding from God and avoiding owning the mantle of who God has made them to be, what God has tasked you to do. And maybe this morning you are beginning to realize you've misidentified or mislabeled your humility or your insecurity for humility. If you are a Christian, you are anointed. It's not something that you earn. You are anointed. It is a gift from God, a spirit in you to set you apart so that you can be healed and empowered into things that only God can do through your life. There are hands only you can hold. There are ears only you can reach. There are bodies only you can embrace and care for. And so it's so important when God opens up opportunities for ministry, whether those seem small or big, that we follow through. You are anointed to be set apart in what you do and how you do it. You are anointed anointed to be healed, healed from all of those voices, scripts, the momentum of your old nature that pulls you away from stepping into who God has made you to be and what God has called you to do. You're anointed to be empowered by God himself. God doesn't just say, hey, go do this. Good luck, all the best. God says, I'm going to, place a power within you, come alongside you. I'm going to bring a community of people whose hearts have been touched by me to rally around you. You don't have to do this alone. And this morning, I want you to hear that call. I want you to hear that call to stop hiding from whatever the thing is, that thing, that impulse, that prompting that maybe some of you have been avoiding or minimizing or trying to ignore or numb out. And I understand the justifications. But Jeff, you don't understand. I'm not good enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not young enough. I'm not old enough. I'm not gifted enough. I'm not popular enough. I don't know enough about the Bible. I fill in the blank. And I'm, you know, who am I to do this? I, I'm not a theologian. I'm not really that well educated. I'm a new Christian or I'm retired or I'm really busy in my life or I'm, I'm a woman or I'm disabled or I'm deficient in some way. Fill in the blank. God hasn't anointed you because he's unaware of the particular challenge of your circumstances. Like God isn't naive. He's anointed you Because God is going to use all of who you are, including those places of wounding and brokenness, 
to not only bless and serve other people, but to provide a redemptive arc to those places of broken, brokenness and woundedness in your life. That's why it's so important to cooperate and say yes to God. He has anointed you for a task through which He intends to redeem those insecurities, those places of brokenness in our life. So I want to make this call to stop hiding. I want to make it um, concrete this morning. So I'm going to invite up Karis and Kyle, and they're going to prepare uh, for this final song. And then during this last song, I'm going to come down here. There's some olive oil right here. I'm going to put on my mask and stand right here. And anybody during the next song, at whatever point, who wants to come forward, I'll just take a small little bit of olive oil on my thumb and I'll just gently place it on your forehead. And in that act, in that response, if you want to take advantage of it, that is you communicating that, God, I'm tired of running. I don't want to hide anymore. I'm scared. You know, Saul's scared of this kingship of, uh, this mantle of kingship. It's not, not a big deal. But God, if you're in this, if you're with me, if you'll help me, then I want to say yes. And I don't want to hide anymore. I don't want to run. I don't want to resist. I'm willing to say yes. I'm willing to cooperate. So I'm going to pray. Then I'll hand it over to these guys to begin playing and then I invite us to stand. And then whether it's few or many, come forward as a symbolic act to say, I'm willing to be set apart for your purposes, God. I'm willing to be healed. I'm willing to be empowered into this thing that you are calling me to do and to be. Let's pray. God, thank you for your anointing that we are anointed, but it's hard to live from that place when we have other voices in our heart leading us down a self-destructive, self-sabotaging path. As we stand and sing, as some of us come forward, may you confirm in a way that speaks to each heart that you love us, that hope and healing and empowerment is available and that we don't need to go into this next opportunity, this next conversation, this next job, this next role with fear. We can step forward because you are walking with us. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.